Good morning, church family. For those of you online, we welcome you as well this Lord's Day. I do want to point out to my left and your right, we do have uh, some new flowers up here, yellow being a new color to all of you. Um, we celebrate life when we have a child born into the church family with a blue and a red flower indicating a boy and a girl. We celebrate spiritual life uh, when somebody makes a decision to follow Jesus. But we're also going to recognize from this day forward uh, death within our church family of our loved ones who have gone before us and who have passed from this life to the next and are experiencing the joy of the resurrection. And so this last week, we had two dear daughters of the church uh, go to be with the Lord, Arliss Hendrickson. Uh, you know, uh, maybe you don't know, but if you do, she actually died uh, in a tragic accident in January. But we did have a celebration of life for her on Saturday. And this past week, we also celebrated uh, the life of Ella Farka. And that would be Pastor Brian Farka's mom as she went home to be with the Lord as well. And so I do just want to make mention that as a church family, I feel it's important um, that we're aware of those who are being born into our church, who are spiritually alive in Christ, and those who are passing from this life to the next as we recognize uh, their loss in our lives. So, all right, before we get into uh, the text today, we'll be in Acts chapter 4. So if you want to open your Bibles and kind of place a bookmark there, uh, we'll get there shortly. I'd invite you to pray with me as we uh, prepare our hearts and our minds uh, for the Word today. God, thank you for uh, your grace, your mercy. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that dwells within all those who believe in you. Uh, Lord, we pray that, uh, God, you would open our hearts and minds to receive uh, the teaching this morning from your word and encourage us to live out our faith boldly and confidently uh, for you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, one of the things that we're going to talk about this morning is how do we suffer well for the sake of Christ? Uh, persecution in the church around the world is a reality but for so many of us here in America, it's something that we don't experience much of. And when I talk about persecution, I mean death because I follow Jesus, or physical torture or beating because I follow Jesus. We have our own way of experiencing suffering in America uh, by being a Christian, but it certainly isn't through physical uh, opposition uh, because we have said yes to Jesus. And so, as we pick back up in our series in Acts, it's been a few weeks, I want to catch you up uh, from where we left off in Acts chapter 3, because it really sets the scene for Acts chapter 4. If you remember, uh, Acts chapter 3, we have Peter and John are going to the temple to worship with other believers in Jesus Christ. And upon getting to the temple, they see a lame beggar who is uh, at the ground, asking for money. Peter says to him, I have no money for you, but what I do have, I will give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. A miracle happened. The power of Jesus Christ went through Peter and John and, and healed this lame man. And he got up on his feet and he walked and he entered into the temple praising God and rejoicing in God. And one of the things we recognized was that Jesus was not dead, he was alive. 
that the power of Jesus Christ still has the ability to change people's lives and do miracles on earth as Jesus was allowing his power to go through his apostles and the disciples of the early church. And I want to remind you today that we as the church continue to be the place where the risen Christ demonstrates his power and his authority as we become the hands and we become the feet of Jesus Christ who are going out into the world to not only tell people about the risen Jesus, but to show them through the way that we love and serve others that Jesus is not dead, he is still alive. And so Peter is now with John, and there's a multitude of people that have come into the temple area, and they begin to preach the good news about Jesus and his resurrection and the salvation that we can find in him. And as a result, people started repenting of their sin, and they were turning to faith in Jesus Christ, and this exciting thing was happening. And you could imagine the, 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 the noise as the multitudes were gathering and trying to figure out what is this message and what is all this disturbance and what is going on as people gathered and gathered and gathered. More and more people were able to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. And this brings us to the place where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 4. See, after Peter and John had healed this lame man and the crowds had swollen, Thousands of people repented of their sin and turned to faith in Christ. Now infused with the Holy Spirit of God and growing at a rapid rate, the church experienced its very first persecution. And that's what we're going to take a look at today. I don't know if you realize this, but it's estimated that nearly 100 million Christians in the world are suffering persecution because they are following Jesus Christ. It's been reported that in the last century, more Christians were put to death for being followers of Christ than in the previous 1900 years. Though the number of Christian martyrs has escalated in the last 100 years, physical opposition, persecution, and death have been a common experience from the very beginning for the Christian church. Based on the church's experience of physical opposition, they come to recognize and realize that this is a normal response by people in the world to the proclamation of the gospel. Though we as Christians in the U.S. are not experiencing this physical opposition yet, may I say, the culture has demonstrated a vocal opposition to Christ and Christian values quite clearly. Our culture is rejecting the Christian values and principles that our country was founded upon, that have been in place for centuries in our society. And any time that we remove the Christian morals, the Christian principles, and the Christian values from society that have been set in place as a a guiding light for how society should function and operate because it's God's best. When we remove that, what we will find within society is an absolute decay and a rejection of God. So should we be surprised today within the American culture that by removing God and the Christian value or principle from government, from schools, 
from society in general, from families, and sadly, from too many churches that are considered Christian churches. We have a moral decline and decay within our society. As a result, we will face more suffering and more persecution in the days to come. Here in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22, it provides for us a description of the physical opposition that the early church experienced. If you remember weeks back, I talked about how Acts oftentimes gives us both a description and sometimes a prescription for how we're to live our life. Through the description of the events that are taking place, I want to see for us some common things that we can do today as Christians, as we make a game plan for how we will stand up and rise up against persecution in even our own lives. Though these early believers knew the physical risks of living out their faith in an environment that was hostile to Christianity, they stood firm for Christ. And so should we. Their bold response to physical opposition has actually given us what I would say is a pattern for how we too can respond to physical opposition in our own life and in our own times as we live our faith for Jesus Christ. So today, I really want you to consider if persecution comes knocking at your door, what's your game plan? How are you going to respond? What are you going to do about it? As we begin in Acts chapter 4, verse 1, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, remember what's going on. They're still in the temple. The lame beggar just got healed. The power of God was demonstrated that Jesus is alive and well, and he's still doing his thing through the church. Here we are. Everybody's around, wondering what's going on, hearing the gospel, repenting of sin, turning to Christ. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them. And since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. Many of the people who heard their message believed it. The number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. This is fascinating, what's going on here. I love how this is our text after Resurrection Sunday. The resurrection is a reality. Jesus is not dead, he is alive. And because he's alive, he's still changing people's lives even today. And the very thing that John and Peter got put in jail for was proclaiming the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So who were these people that were there? Not the multitudes, but these priests and religious leaders who showed up. The priests were simply the people who were in charge of temple worship. We have the, uh, the, the captain of, uh, of the temple guard who is there. This individual, he actually was overseeing the security of the temple grounds. His authority and his power was quite high as he was number two in rank in terms of power and authority right under the high priest. 
There were then the Sadducees. They're an interesting group of individuals. The Sadducees were the most educated people amongst them. They were religious yet, but they were highly political. They were powerful and they clung to their power. They were wealthy and they clung to their wealth. Interesting enough, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection from the dead and therefore they rejected entirely that Jesus was raised from the dead. The Sadducees were motivated by politics and greed more than they were motivated to live righteously before God. The Sadducees only accepted the Pentateuch or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as the true word of God. All the rest of the Old Testament they set aside as kind of commentary. They didn't expect the physical presence of a Messiah. And certainly, as I said, they rejected that anybody could rise from the dead. So you can imagine, as the crowd was building, the Sadducees were not only threatened by the building of the crowd and the chaos that pursued, but they also didn't like the message that was being proclaimed, that there is resurrection from the dead. Jesus has rose from the grave, and if you want a resurrection life, then you must believe in Jesus too. And yet, what were the results? By the power of God at work, we're told that 5,000 men now total the number of men who believe. There's two ways that the word men is used in Scripture. One is to describe humanity, mankind. But another is to describe men, <laughs> and this is men. What that means for us is that what Luke's not including is the women and children who've come to faith. So there isn't about 5,000. There's likely 10,000, 15, or 20,000 people now. There's this massive movement of people following Jesus. As I said, the Sadducees were, they, they, they were politically driven and they were power hungry. And at the time of, uh, of this event, Rome was the power broker. They were in charge of everything. But they granted power and authority over the temple grounds to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were 70 ruling authorities of the Jewish faith, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, and priests who were in charge of everything. Rome liked order, and so did Sadducees. And so when there was disorder because of all the commotion, it was a threat. They didn't want Rome to come in and take their power or authority away. They didn't want to lose their political clout. As I said, they were more motivated by politics and greed than righteous living. And here we find ourselves. So what does all this mean anyway? What happened to John and Peter? They were jailed. How unjust, how unfair. This leads us to point number one. Sometimes God will use bad news to get the good news out. You know, it wasn't good news for Peter and John to go to jail. I imagine they weren't gently taken to jail. I imagine they probably suffered some form of physical persecution. 
I don't imagine that their night in jail was very restful or delightful, but it was their experience. But you see, the injustice of Peter and John being put in jail and the likely physical persecution that they suffered is actually what led Peter and John to have an opportunity to share the gospel with the Sanhedrin. Why does this matter? I want you to think about this. If you were to go before the the, the greatest governing ruling authority in your circle, it's not likely you could just call and set up an appointment. And I doubt that you would want to get arrested and put in jail so you could go before them. But this is exactly what God orchestrated. He orchestrated the arrest of John and Peter so that John and Peter could stand before this high court, this ruling authority, and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and the resurrection to them. You see, sometimes... We need to look at the opportunities that God is giving us as an opportunity to do something good for God rather than as a situation or a circumstance that has gone bad. I want to question you and just ask you, how do you see bad news situations in your life? Do you see them as opportunities? for God to use you to advance his kingdom, to advance the gospel in you and through you. One commentator wrote, when it comes to the gospel, you can lock up the messengers, but you can't contain or restrain the message. How true that is. Peter and John experienced persecution that day. It was the first in the Christian church, and since then, persecution has not gone away. From every generation since, the church has had to suffer to advance the gospel. And one of the realities that the Bible talks about is that as the time nears for Jesus to return, the Christian church will suffer an increase of persecution. I am not an alarmist. But I firmly believe that the return of Christ is coming soon. And I also wonder how ready the church is to face an increase of persecution and suffering for the sake of Christ and the advancement of the gospel. I can't tell you how strongly I feel that if you don't know Jesus, the times ahead are going to be much harder than if you do. If you do know Jesus, I want you to be prepared. I want you to be ready. I don't want you to be surprised that the Christian experience comes with persecution and suffering. And if we are living in the times that are nearing the end and the return of Christ, which I really believe we are, then we must be ready to suffer for Christ like we've never experienced before. Persecution is an inevitable element of genuine Christian faith. Listen to Jesus' words in John 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. 
The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me naturally, they will persecute you. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, 12, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is maybe the kind of persecution that you and I can relate to, being persecuted not physically for doing right, but listen to verse 11. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. I can relate to that. I'm sure you can too. Now listen to what Jesus says in verse 12. Be happy about it. Be glad. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Wow. That's powerful. Who can be happy and who's glad about persecuting and suffering? Yet it's part of the Christian experience because in our suffering, we become like Christ. Paul is writing to Timothy, a young pastor in the church, to strengthen him in his ministry. In 2 Timothy 3.12, he says this, Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Remember, Our suffering as Christians is really an opportunity for God to test us, to refine us, to purify us, to mold us, to shape us into the image and into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's also an opportunity for God to use us to advance his kingdom and advance the gospel in the world. The second point this morning is that believers can live with confidence that God will help us to be courageous witnesses in times of trouble. We can live with confidence to be courageous as a witness for Christ in times of trouble, not on our own power and effort, but because the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that is in us. Beginning in verse 5, I'll read through 12. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there along with Caiaphas, John Alexander, and the other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? This is a very important question. Remember the Sanhedrin, specifically the Sadducees. They were the power brokers. They had the authority and now they're pressing James and, or I'm sorry, Peter and, and John on the matter of whose authority and by what power are you doing this? What they are saying is we have the power, we have the authority, and we didn't give it to you. And by the way, we don't even agree with your message. And so we continue. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, 
Are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and all the people of Israel that he has healed, that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. You know what Peter just did? He took the Sanhedrin to school. The most educated and informed individuals. Peter rightly pointed out through the Old Testament who Jesus is and whom they're rejecting. And then he told them rightly that there's no other power, there's no other name, there's no other authority under heaven upon which people can be saved but by the name of Jesus Christ. This is bold. This is confidence. Not in himself, but because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, many of us might not experience the physical persecution for following Jesus anytime soon. But we have experienced, to some degree, other forms of persecution. If you're a student in school, you know what it's like to not be included, to not be invited to a party, or to not be part of a group of people because you're not like them. For those of you in family life who have non-believers who are critical towards Christianity, you know what it's like to have to suffer ridicule and be put down by them. For the spouse who has a non-believing spouse, you know what it's like to live with that person and have to work hard at loving that person when they don't love you back. By the way, that doesn't mean if you don't love Jesus, you can't love your spouse. What it simply means is that when we do love Jesus, we can love like Jesus loves us selflessly and sacrificially. Maybe in the workplace, you've been treated by your boss or coworkers as the brunt of the joke. You didn't get that uh, promotion all because you follow Jesus. Maybe in friendships, you've lost meaningful relationships because you follow Jesus. Well, here's one of the realities of living for Jesus, is that we must recognize if we're going to be courageous in our pursuit of advancing the gospel and living for Jesus, that we understand that the name of Jesus still has power and authority today. For it's in the name of Jesus that your life was changed. And in the name of Jesus, he is still changing lives all around us. So what does that mean for us? We should be willing to tell others about Jesus because it's his name that brings life change and transformation. We should be willing to love and serve others in the name of Jesus, that when we're persecuted, when we're put down, we don't react to them. We love them and serve them. And in doing so, we draw them to Jesus.
We pray for others in the name of Jesus. Why? Because the name of Jesus has power. And then we recognize that we have a direct line to the absolute truth. Through the word of God, yes, but also by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us that brings power to our lives. We're going to be confident in proclaiming Christ in this world. If we're going to be effective witnesses, we must rely on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. <laughs> well, this is interesting. They saw Peter and John as uneducated people. They were untrained. They weren't like us. Yet they were schooling the Sanhedrin. Interesting enough, how were they recognized? They were recognized as people who were with Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Are you somebody who others recognize that you have been hanging out with Jesus? Through prayer, through the word of God, through the way that you're submitting your life to the rule and reign of Christ as Lord of your life by the power of of the Spirit in you. See, our power comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we yield to the control of the Holy Spirit, we can become instruments of God's will. It's in Luke 12, verses 11 and 12, where it says, And when you're brought to trial in the synagogues and before the rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. Let's be confident in how we live. Because when we're pressed and persecuted and we don't know what to do or say, the promise is that the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that resides in us, that will not only teach, lead, and guide us into the truth, will also give us the words and the courage to say what needs to be said. And finally, we are to stand firm in the gospel. For it is the only way for people to be made right with God. Verse 16, what should we do with these men? They asked each other, we can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling people about everything we have seen and heard. <laughs> Once again, school is on. You know what the word of God says. Do we obey God or humans? We obey God, especially when human instruction is opposition to God's word. You know, I think it's amazing that Peter and John and the early church couldn't stop telling people about Jesus. 
Because when you encounter Jesus and he changes your life, you can't help but tell others about him. Yet the interesting thing, all across the United States today, there are going to be pastors like me who are going to be encouraging their congregation. Please go and tell people about Jesus. They didn't have to do that. Because through the radical transformation and the changed life through experiencing Jesus, they willingly went and told people about Jesus. And by the way, I know many of you do as well. See, the message of the gospel, it is exclusive, so it's hard to tell others that there's only one way to the Father in heaven, and it's through Jesus. Because when we tell people that, what's their normal response if they're of the world? Well, that seems pretty unfair. Is it really that exclusive? Is there really only one way? What about my good deeds? The irony of the opposition from the world to God's way to salvation is that they're willing to reject the only way and try every other way to get there. Isn't it ironic? When the only way to heaven is by God's grace through something he did for you in Jesus Christ? Yet to the world, the gospel is foolishness. See, our goal isn't to focus on our results when we share Jesus with others. So I want to free you from that. Our goal is to faithfully share Jesus through word and through deed, and leave the results up to God. They totally belong to him. In light of persecution, it's obedience over compromise. Do you notice how John and Peter, when they were pressed by the authority, they didn't back down, they didn't compromise the message, they didn't soften it, they just gave it to him straight. They took him to school. They helped him see the truth. See, when we choose to do right, we can walk and we can speak with confidence because we can trust in the Holy Spirit to do the work of God in us and then through us. There's a couple ways we can bring the message of the gospel into the world. One is we can take our Bible and we can beat people with it and we can ridicule them and put them down. And, and, and many of you maybe experience that. We can yell at people and tell them, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, repent, you need Jesus. And I mean, how effective is that? There's another way. We can go into the world with gentleness and respect. We can love through good deeds and service towards others. We can share the truth with others in a way that's going to help them see and understand who Jesus really is. I want to close our time with 1 Peter 3.15. It says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Peter and John answered the question with gentleness and respect. They didn't compromise. They were firm in the gospel. They didn't 
soften the truth. And they left the results up to God. And if we could take anything away from their example by way of how we should respond when persecution comes knocking, may it be that we realize sometimes God uses bad news to get the good news out of us. That God wants us to live with confidence and being a witness for Christ, not in our power, but in His power in us and through us. And that when we revere Christ as Lord, we can go into the world confidently, telling people of the hope we have when they ask what it's all about. And when we do it with gentleness and respect, we will win people to Christ. And that's good news. Amen? Our time's up. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and for the encouragement that we can gain today. We recognize, Jesus, that as a church, you're alive and well. Your power and authority is demonstrated through our lives as you live in us and through us, as we become the hands and feet and the mouthpiece of you, God. I pray that we would find courage today to be faithful to the gospel. God, we recognize the world is changing and it seems that the signs are real. Indication that you're returning soon. Christians all over the world are being persecuted today and we lift our brothers and sisters up in Christ who are suffering. Give them a persevering spirit. For those of us who have maybe, maybe not experienced the physical persecution, but suffering in other ways for you, God, help us to remain bold and confident in you. Help us to be gentle and respectful. Help us to be loving and serving. And help us to pray others into the kingdom. That, God, your gospel would go forth, that your kingdom would grow, and that your will would be done in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're not going to close with a song today, but with a blessing. So I'm going to ask you to please stand and receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he give you a spirit of confidence and boldness to stand firm in the gospel. May you love and serve others well and communicate the truth with gentleness and respect. May you rely not on yourselves, but on the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you and through you. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a great day.